Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Diane Guerrero, and this is How It Is, the show where you hear women tell their own stories in their own words. We are unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. On this episode... What does it mean to live our values? And how exactly do we do that? You're a queen. You guys, it's our last episode. I know, I know, endings are hard, but we're going out with a bang, 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 bang. As you know, this season, we've been talking about how we value things like money, work, time, and play. Now it's time to talk about living our values. How do we take the things that matter to us and bring them to life when life is hard? That V word gets thrown around a lot. Core values, company values, personal values. But what I want to know is, how do we take these ideas that matter to us and bring them to life? It's not enough to believe in something, right? Values are something you do. So on this episode, you'll hear from three amazing women who truly embody what it means to live your values General Ann Dunwoody, Sarah Eaglehart, and Sonia Manzano, all trailblazers in their own way. General Ann Dunwoody is the former commander of the U.S. Army Materiel Command. And in 2008, she became the first woman in U.S. military history to achieve a four-star officer rank. The President of the United States has reposed special trust and confidence in the patriotism, valor, fidelity, and abilities of Anne E. Dunwoody. In view of these qualities and her demonstrated potential for increased responsibility, she is therefore promoted in the United States Army from Lieutenant General to General. By order of the Secretary of the Army, signed George Casey, Jr., General United States Army, Chief of Staff. That's pretty badass. She retired from the Army in 2012 after 38 years of service and wrote a book called A Higher Standard. Over the course of her career as a soldier, as a trailblazer, and as a leader, she has lived her values by building thoughtful teams, helping individuals understand their personal strengths, and as she says, always ensuring that even though she was the first woman to do many of these things, she was never going to be the last. Even though I had four generations of West Pointers in my family and my sister, older sister, joined the military, I never even thought about joining the military. During my junior year in college, the military army was trying to recruit more women after the Vietnam War. And they came up with this program that if you were qualified and accepted, they were going to pay you $500 a month during my senior year in college, 
graduate as a commissioned second lieutenant, and have a two-year commitment. And I thought, wow, that's $500. That was a lot of money back then, still is. And I figured I could stand on my head for two years. I thought the idea that the Army was going to send me and train me to jump out of airplanes was just super fantastic. So when I got down there, uh, I had long blonde hair as I do now, and I wore it up in the bun as you have to do in uniform. It has to be above your collar. And when I got down there, um, first they weren't happy that women were joining the airborne ranks, and there was only three of us in that class is when they first started letting women officers go to airborne school. And uh, they told me that by wearing my hair up with beret and bobby pins was hazardous to my health in jumping out of airplanes, and I could hurt myself, and that I needed to cut my hair. Well, they just want you to do that so they can intimidate you and look more like a guy. And so I went back to my room, and I got some masking tape for the next day, and I taped my hair up under my helmet, and I went to airborne school training, and I never heard another word. Sometimes you have to kick down the door, sometimes the door is open for you, and sometimes you just walk through that door. And I think one of the toughest doors that I had to deal with was when I first was assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. I was a major, uh, this was 1987, and I didn't realize when I was assigned to the division, which is about 14,000 paratroopers, that I would be the only female field grade officer in the division. And so they were very uh, hua, almost macho. Women coming into the ranks was a new thing. And when I was assigned there, they really didn't know what to do with me. And so most of my male peers that had the same qualifications as I did, coming out of Leavenworth, which is a a mid-level school, highly competitive, uh, I was a, a senior paratrooper, which means I've been to jump master school. I had two master's degrees. Uh, I had two company commands. But they got the high-priority jobs like XO battalion XO or operations officer. And I got a pretty uh, non-important, uh, they're all important, but it wasn't one of those um, career-building jobs. I became the property book officer for the division. Now, all jobs are important, and I'll I'll make that point, and it's always our responsibility to do whatever job we are given to the best of our ability. And what I discovered, because at one point when I didn't know what to do with me and my peers got all the good jobs and I had this less important job, it was the first and only time I thought about leaving the Army. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it, and I didn't think I would be able or be allowed to make a difference. But by doing that job to the best of my ability, I did not stay in that job very long, and soon I was given a a better job, and eventually even better job, and one of the most highly coveted jobs in the division, the uh, division parachute officer, which used to be a male-only coded position to ultimately commanding a battalion in the 82nd Airborne Division. And every time the Army offered another 
assignment or or job, I thought about it and said, that sounds good. And I think I would enjoy that. And I think I could make a difference. And so because there weren't a lot of women, what I realized was it was really important to include a group of diverse folks on all of your teams, especially the decision-making teams. You want the best and brightest from all walks of life on your team, at the table, to help you give perspectives different from your own. And if you surround yourself with people that look like you, think like you, act like you, then you're not going to get a very diverse response to a question or a complex issue you might have. They all say, yeah, man, that's great. What you said, super. Instead of, hey, did you think about it like this? Or how about coming at it from this angle? And what I found is that my solutions and decisions were much more uh, complete when I had a group of diverse, talented people providing me input. In the military, one of our most important responsibilities is to grow leaders and to inspire people to be the best they can be for the good of the organization so that you can accomplish a mission to a very high standard. And many times we get caught up in promoting in our own image And I think it's really important that we look across the talent pool out there. And when people are making a difference, that we reach out to uh, not give them a a handout, but a hand up. I think it's one of our most absolute uh, critical responsibilities that we have. Not how many times we jumped out of airplanes. I mean, miles we ran. But building that bench of talent and future leaders across the organization. If you have a vision for the organization, where it's going and what it's going to do, and it's exciting, and everyone can see themselves from the person working in the depot to the squad leaders to the mid-level managers to the senior folks, can see how important their role is in accomplishing that vision. You get 60,000 people coming to work every day wanting to make a difference. And I just believe that by doing that, that's a very powerful thing. Yes, General Dunwoody, that is powerful. Listening to you gives me the courage to kick that door down and tape up my hair if I have to. What an inspiring life, and it is so true. When we fight the good fight, we are paving the way for everyone that follows. Isn't it crazy that we didn't have one single female four-star officer until 2008? I mean, women have been around for a lot longer than that. And there's only been two more since then. Okay, shout out to General Janet Wolfenbarger of the Air Force and Admiral Michelle Howard of the Navy. You rock. And who knows? Maybe the next four-star woman is listening to this right now. Hey there. Our next guest lives her values in a world that has systematically tried to erase them. She's Sarah Eagleheart, a member of the Ogallala Lakota Nation and the CEO of Native Americans and Philanthropy. 
She grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and as you'll hear, she has dedicated herself to mending the sacred hoop. That means passing her Lakota values to her sons and strengthening those values in her community. The values of prayer, respect, caring, compassion, honesty, humility, generosity, and wisdom. And as she tells it, sharing your values can be an act of resistance. So as a Lakota person, we're constantly taught that the creator is there with you. And I think that what I, and now, you know, in my life, I've learned that not everyone grows up knowing that the great spirit is with you at all times. But because our, we grow up with this idea of Medakuya Oyase, that we're, we are all related, that we're all connected, that's the ending of our prayers, that every prayer is reinforced with, we are all related, we are all connected. And for me, I think that that instilled this idea of reinforcing your responsibility to your community that many other people don't have. So when we look at our, we look at who we are, it's not, it doesn't really come from an individual sense. It comes from a community sense of how, how am I helping the people? I have two sons that have already completed spiritual responsibilities. And so both of my sons have actually completed the Sundance, which is a ceremony that happens annually where they fast and dance for four days from sunup to sundown. And they make a commitment to do it for four years. And part of my rationale for really encouraging them to get involved with the ceremony, because you have to be called again to be in that ceremony. But I really encouraged them to follow that because I felt they needed some spiritual grounding and I wanted them to know where home was. And they're learning all of these lessons and stories that are generations old, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of generations old that we've been able to hold on to. For them to learn that was incredibly important and for them to understand that value system that we hold dear and then to see it in action is something that when when they finished, I was like kind of proud of myself because I feel like for myself, that act of bringing my children to that ceremony in a weird way is is mending the sacred hoop that we, that Lakota people all talk about, Native people talk about this, uh, mending of the sacred hoop. And for me, because those ceremonies were disrupted for a couple of generations, for that ceremony to survive was actually a big achievement. The fact that I'm even here to stand and talk about this value system is absolutely an act of resistance active resistance by my family, by my grandmas, by my aunties, by my mother. All of that is something that that is just an act of defiance that our community was able to hold on to. The phrase that I always fall back on is Medakuya Oyase, that we are all related, we are all connected. And that doesn't mean to just each other. It really, truly means that we are connected to 
not only each other, but also to the earth, to the four directions, you know, to the sky, to ourselves. And I think that that's really important to remember because without it, I don't know what we would do, honestly. I think that remembering that value of being connected to one another, watching out for one another, standing up for one another, caring for this world and the animals and the people in it, I think is something that we all need to do. And so the value of Madaka Yaoyase is something that is always just on my mind and in my heart. I love that idea of valuing connection to each other and to nature as one of your highest ideals. My family doesn't have a sacred hoop or a specific list of traditional values, but what we do have in common is the value of tradition. As a kid, I knew that my family was different from, I guess, an American family that had been in this country for generations. And I really did enjoy how my family chose to spend time together, and that was through music and dance. I mean, salsa, ballenato, cumbia, like those, you know, sounds from Colombia. And I remember just my mom grabbing a napkin, and she would she would be dancing like, you know, traditional Colombian cumbia. I loved when that happened at, at the house. People, Some people would break out pots and start banging on pots. Believe me, there were times where I was just like, look at my family and just be like, I don't want to do this. I want to just sit down and enjoy a meal just like white people do. Okay, quiet, with no music, with no walking around. I mean, of course, this is like what I thought, that American families were calm and that they just sat at the table and they just ate a, a meal. And this was like, as a brown little kid, I thought, was sort of the American standard. Of course, now I realize that we all have our own family traditions. And Listen, whatever your traditions may be, hold on to them. They bring so much joy, and what could be more valuable than that? Speaking of joy, guys, guess who's here? It's Maria. Who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood. Well, actually, it's Sonia Manzano, but I know her as Maria on Sesame Street. Sonia was the first Latina I ever saw on TV as a kid. She is a huge role model for me personally because she understood early on how important it was what we saw on TV to mirror the world we actually lived in. She won 15 Emmys over the course of her 44-year career on Sesame Street and went on to write kids' books and a memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. Growing up in a tumultuous household in the South Bronx, I found comfort watching television. We would watch Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver. And certainly, it was a world that I was not aware of. I had never been in the suburbs. I didn't know where those people lived. They certainly didn't live around me. We lived in a tenement neighborhood. Where are the children? Kathy's next door. Betty's at a sorority meeting and Bud's upstairs. Ah, quiet evening at home. I can use it. I convinced myself that Robert Young on Father Knows Best looked exactly like my Theo Eddie. 
like my Uncle Eddie. And I remember saying to mom, mom, Robert Young is exactly like Theo Eddie. They look exactly alike. And she looked at me like I had lost my mind, but somehow agreed. And I think I kind of, to use a term that I heard John Leguizamo once say, you Machiavellian <laughs> the situation so that it suits your needs. So I think that I, you know, forced my identity onto them. You know, Natalie Wood, I forced my identity onto her because she was one of the first movie stars that had dark hair. Everybody else was blonde in my eyes. And so for some reason I said, oh, well, we have something in common, black hair. It was a different world. It's hard for me to, to get this across to people nowadays. There were no people of color on television. There was, We were invisible. Latinos were totally invisible. So when Sesame Street cast me as Maria, I remembered that. And I always thought that there was some other little Latina girl out there watching me and thinking, wow, I, there is some other Latins in the world besides me. So uh, I took that very seriously, and then I had to take it a step further when I did everything I could as an actor on Sesame Street, but I still wanted to contribute, and I would uh, criticize some of the Latino content, and the producer said, why don't you try writing some of that material yourself? And boy, I really did backtrack and backpedaled because I had never written anything in my life. As a matter of fact, I need a tutorial to write a thank you note. But I knew the characters. I knew Big Bird. I knew Oscar the Grouch, my favorite character. And I put them in situations that were, I guess, Latino-centric. We were teaching the word hola, which means hello. And I thought that everything up till then on the show was kind of Oh, I don't know, like Latin culture was in a museum and it didn't grow and it wasn't sexy and it wasn't sophisticated. So I cast myself as Ginger Rogers and Emilio Delgado as Fred Astaire and we did a takeoff of a song from the movie Top Hat. Each time we meet at work or the street, we always say hello. But you say hola and I say hola. It's a word that we both know. I mean, I say in the lyrics are, you know, Latins from the Bronx and Argentina and Manhattan all say hola when they mean hello. <laughs> Latins from Queens and the hip Argentines say hola when greeting each other. We know the way we can all say hola, what's happening, brother? So it was a direct inspiration from what I watched as a kid. And then I got a little bit more complex, I guess, when uh, we wanted to show kids that Latinos came in all races, especially in a Puerto Rican family where you have very light-skinned cousins and, and more Afro-looking cousins. And so I wrote a bit where Maria is waiting for her cousin and she tells Telly Monster, you know, I have to go to the store. If my cousin comes, tell him I'll be right back. And a black man comes, and Telly assumes that that can't be Maria's cousin. And it turns out that it is Maria's cousin, and then we, we make the lesson that way. And I thought that was a very kind of poignant moment that I uh, was able to share with Sesame Street because I was racially confused growing up. I had a very light-skinned cousin, and I was convinced 
that if we found ourselves in the South and had to take the bus, I would have to go to the back and he would sit in the front and then I wouldn't know when to get off. <laughs> so I, that was an experience that I had kind of that I, you know, I remembered and Sesame Street gave me the opportunity to actually write about it. The most rewarding part of my career is the opportunity to matter. As a matter of fact, I, uh, it's one of my favorite lines that Reese Witherspoon delivered in the movie Walk the Line, where she was playing June Carter Cash, the singer. And they asked Reese Witherspoon as this character, you know, what, what did she want to do with her life? And she said, just trying to matter. I think that's a great line that June Carter Cash said. I, I assume it was a true line, but it was certainly in that movie. And I think that that's uh, the opportunity that being on Sesame Street has given me is the opportunity to matter. Thank you, Tia Sonia, for everything that you've done to bring light and love to children everywhere and showing us that living your values and building your life and career with values doesn't have to just be a challenge. It can also mean living a life full of joy and inspiration. And I hope with all of my heart that you know this, but you matter to so many of us. On this season two finale, you heard from General Ann Dunwoody, Sarah Eaglehart, and Sonia Manzano. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of season two of How It Is. I know! I'm sad it's over too, but I'm so glad we were able to hear these 15 amazing women telling their truths, sharing their wisdom, and lived experiences. I feel like my heart and soul grew a few sizes these past few weeks. And it really got me inspired to live my values every day and to be thoughtful. I am going to vote with my values. I am going to speak out with my values. I'm going to act on my values every damn day. Don't forget, if you missed any of the episodes or if you want to catch up on our previous season, look for How It Is on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back before you know it, I promise. In the meantime, let's keep the conversation going, shall we? Use hashtag HowItIs on social media and find more from the show at hello-sunshine.com. We love hearing from you, so don't hold back. Making moves in our time You're so damn perfect in your own right I'm Diane Guerrero, and I'm a badass queen. Protector of justice, daughter of immigrants, change maker, and human lover. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lair, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Jillian Ferguson and Kara Hart. Our development producer is Mary Phillips Sandy. Sound designed by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. All right, 
So long, farewell, see you soon. Sorry, what, my dream carry? Uh.